Welcome to The Thing About Health Coaching, the podcast from Your Coach Health, where we discuss advancements in health and wellness coaching, trends to watch, and the growing body of research. This episode was generated from conversations that occurred at our Global Health and Wellbeing Coaching Symposium in November of 2022, with a focus on demystifying health coaching in digital health, healthcare, and beyond. Please note that the industry is rapidly changing, so some of the information discussed may be outdated. For the latest news in health coaching, be sure to follow along with us and check out our latest health coaching report at yourcoach.health. We enjoy bringing you each and every episode, and it would mean a lot if you could rate this podcast in your favorite player. And of course, hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. So hi, everyone. Thank you so much for uh, caring about health coaching. I think that, you know, in my opinion, health coaching is the number one opportunity in healthcare to make a change in people's behavior and really tackle some of these chronic diseases that are happening in our world that so far no one, no, no country has reversed. And so I want to explore with you why that is and what we could be doing better to understand both the brain and behavior and kind of what, what works, what doesn't work, that kind of thing. So um, the, the health coaching value also is that we have a clinician shortage. We have a uh, increased burden of disease and a decreased number of clinicians. And especially the clinicians that are being cut or that are not in good supply are not those that change behavior. They, they're prescribers. They're people who deal with the after effects of chronic conditions. Whereas health coaches, I feel like are the frontline benefit of being able to make a difference. But the other thing that is hindering health coaches, I think is that two, two forces. One is that it's not really scalable. One-on-one coaching is not really scalable unless you have a private pay situation. I'm interested in vulnerable populations. I've been interested in that my whole career. And so I'm thinking about ways to kind of get that, that solution more sustainable for health coaching to be more effective. And so just think about, you know, as you go through your career, you know, how can technology help you to scale yourself and look for technologies that help you to do that? The second thing is smart goals. And so this is kind of the sacred cow and dare I say something about smart goals, but we recently had a webinar where um, our behavior design VP, Casey was uh, talking to about 800 different health coaches. And the, the consensus was, hey, something's not really working as promised with SMART goals. And there's a recent study that we see on SMART goals being used over the course of a year. And what happened is that they had three groups. One group was given nothing. One group was, uh, you know, given a friend and some occasional emails. And one friend or and one group was given smart goals on top of the friend and the occasional emails. And what you see is that the control group didn't really fulfill their goals over the course of the year. They, they didn't lose the weight. They didn't, um, you know, achieve what they had set out to do. This is again, over 12 months. The second group that got a little bit of support and you know a friend actually did better. And then the SMART goals actually, when added, reduced the curve of success back down to the controls. And so these kinds of studies indicate that there's something that we're missing about the use of SMART goals. It's not that they're bad entirely. It's that as we coach through them, we're, we're missing something. And I think probably all of you can feel that. I, I have felt that in my own practice, my own uh, journey with helping to change people's behavior and my own. So let's start defining a couple things about the brain. Number one, that habit, there's a difference between a habit and a behavior. 
a behavior is a one-time or kind of a multiple-time thing that I do. But then if I do it long enough and repeat it over and over again, then it becomes a habit. <clears throat> and a habit is specifically defined in the brain as something that is automatic. You know, it's a new default. So if I brush my teeth like this, if I practice doing it like this over the course of a year, then I will eventually get there. And there's very specific neuroscientific neuroplastic, which is where the brain changes, gates by which this automaticity sets in. And it's really not, not flexible. It's not like you can, you know, create a habit in 21 days. And actually that's a story that came from a plastic surgeon in the 1960s who noticed that it took three weeks for his patients to get used to their new nose. And so we, we've kind of, you know, misunderstood, if you will, how long it takes the brain to make a habit. And we have to be honoring of the science of how long that takes. There's, there's no shortcuts. And so what that means is that our job is to get that person, our client, our patient, to repeat the behavior in some form or fashion long enough and enough to get the brain to go, oh, I get it. You want to live like that. You want that to be a way of life. And in fact, that's the only form of permanent behavior change that the brain brokers in. It's the only currency of behavior change that the, that the brain brokers in. Everything else is context. Everything else is temporary. And so that may be something like an aha that many of you are having right now of like, oh, I get it. That's what, that's what happened to me. <clears throat> and so that's what's happening in my practice. And in terms of, you know, my experience that I had a, I had a class or I had a, um, a, in my experience, I had a study that was done, a clinical study, randomized control trial. And I was looking at behavior change long-term in the area of weight loss. And in the interim, I did some interviews with various patients, various people in the study. And one woman kind of blew my mind. She's like, you know, I, I asked her, how's it going? And she said, oh, it's going really well. You know, I'm losing weight. I'm learning how to eat. I'm learning how to exercise, blah, blah. blah. And inside I'm like, oh, good. This is working for her. This is awesome. And then she pauses and she says, I know what to do. I don't know why I don't do it. And I, that, that, that summarized decades of me pursuing behavior change, of me trying futilely to change my own behavior, to change other people's behavior. And I realized that what we were doing was not sustainable. It was not going to convert behaviors to habits. And we were just teaching her certain things and that they were going to revert back. And in fact, this is a problem that we see at scale. The National Weight Loss Registry is a 10,000 person survey that's been done many, many times over for, for years. And what they find is that people who lose the weight and keep it off, this is a proxy for behavior change in any category, are different in a couple ways. But the most interesting way that I find that they are different is that they have the shortest relapse periods. And what that means is that these people are getting habit formation, they're getting permanent behavior change in, set up in the brain because they are not wallowing in um, you know, stories of their failure, stories of their relapse, stories of their shame, you know, shame and guilt. They have some way to kind of pick it back up and still repeat the behavior and do it long enough where the brain responds. And so that's what sets them apart. And what I, what I think we are looking at here is we don't have a behavior change problem in healthcare or in, in, in health coaching we have a failure problem. We have a guilt and shame problem. 
And so that is something that I've been really squarely focused on. And in my research, what I found is that there's an area of the brain called the habenula, H-A-B-E-N-U-L-A. And remember that word because even though it's not a common word and it's hard to remember, remember that word because it's going to be coming up more and more and more. This, this is the advent of realizing how important this brain area is. It's important in a couple of ways. Number one, it is your failure light in your brain. If you think you failed at something, the habenula wakes up and it lights up. And then if you wake it from its slumber, the second thing it does is it downregulates or kills your motivation to keep trying. So as a health coach, this is your, this is your biggest barrier to have to contend with. And I've noticed that a lot of really smart, really amazing health coaches and, and clinicians will intuitively feel this in their work and they'll start to iterate on what they're doing and start to change and adjust what they're doing almost subconsciously with their patients and clients to help them manage this failure. And it's almost like a, a brake pedal and a gas pedal in a car. So for years and years and years, we've been working so hard on motivation and dopamine and, and getting people to be stoked and excited about what they're doing. And that's the gas pedal. So we've been like pushing, pushing, pushing on that gas pedal, like revving that in the brain and seeing if we can get the person to just do it, you know, to, to just get up over the hill. But we didn't realize that there was a brake pedal on. And just like in a real car, the brake pedal being on, if, if your brakes are good, you're not going anywhere if you're, if you're punching the gas, you know, you have to disengage the brake in order for the gas to work. So this is the habenula. The habenula is your brake pedal. Brake pedal. It is what's called anti-reward pathway in the literature for that reason. It seems like it's an outsized effect that if you try to get somebody to change, the brake is on, you can't get them to change or it's the change is temporary. The Thing About Health Coaching is brought to you by Your Coach Health, the only operating system for behavior change powered by health coaches. We help a growing roster of industry partners stand up or augment their health coaching operations with the largest supply of validated health coaches and proprietary technology for seamless integration. We are the premier virtual home for health and wellness coaching, an ecosystem built to empower health coaches while expanding access to their services through our industry partnerships. To find out more, head over to yourcoach.health or yourcoachhealth on all the socials. Join us on the health coaching revolution as we strive to deliver the power of health coaching to the eight and a half billion global population by 2030. And this is where going back to SMART goals, I realized that we're missing something. You know, SMART goals are performative. They're, 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 you know, I want to do something by a specific date. Well, the rigidity of that, the fact that it doesn't breathe, it naturally weeds out people who reach the target on time at that, you know, and the, and the target and the weight loss target and all these things have to kind of converge in a perfect world. And we know life is messy. We know there are disruptors. We know that people get discouraged. We know that they avoid going back to their health coach. How many times have we seen data where they start out really super inspired and then they start avoiding you because they're embarrassed about how it's going for them, right? And so in order to protect against the, the rigidity of SMART goals, in order to protect against you know, the, the, the sort of unintentional, I failed at the SMART goal, you know, we need to do something differently. And again, going back to my VP of behavior design, Casey, she, she calls out that, you know, if you set a 10,000 step goal, which by the way, was an arbitrary step goal 
set in place by a Japanese pedometer company years ago in order to sell more pedometers. It doesn't have a whole lot of, you know, specific, you know, 9,000 versus 11,000. There's no magical thing about 10,000. And what she says is that, you know, if you uh, set a 10,000 step goal, but only reach 9,000, are you going to think that you failed at the 10,000 step goal? Probably most of us would. And so that's a Habenula event. We're trying to avoid the Habenula event. Now the brakes on. Now what are you going to do? So in order to really get around this area of the brain and never wake it up, we have learned, we've discovered actually a new way of doing things. You know, iterative mindset is what we, <clears throat> what we use instead of performance mindset, instead of performative goals, instead of smart goals, we use iteration. And iteration, for those of you who don't know that word, is when you adjust, when you tweak, when you tinker with something, when you constantly relentlessly fit it to your life and, or, or pick something else, you know? It's that, it's that natural kind of, you know, let me see if I can get myself to do this. Oh, nope, that didn't work. Let me see if I can get myself to do that. But there's an attitudinal difference between that and the smart goal rigid thinking that is super flexible, super, super accommodating for, you know, life happening for all the disruptors, you know, the kids getting sick, you getting sick, um, you running out of time, you feeling like guilty because you're ignoring your kids because you got to go work out. All these things are grounds for iteration. And what we find in our research is that, you know, iteration is the fail safe. It is the thing that keeps you from hitting that brake pedal and having a conversation as a clinician with a patient or a client around iteration is the single biggest difference and best thing you can do to, again, going back to behaviors and habits, converting that behavior to a habit. You need that person to stay in effort long-term for up to a year. The only way that you're going to get them to do that is to talk to them about iteration. Well, it's not the thing that you picked. That's the, you know, it, it's not you. That's the problem. It is the thing that you picked. That's the problem. And so let's blame, let's blame the thing we picked that didn't really work out very well. And a lot of you are having these natural intuitive ways of, of managing failure. But now that you've heard me say, Failure management is the number one thing that you can do. And iteration is the number one thing you can support to help protect your clients and patients from this, this, this stopping disease. I call it the quit trying disease. You know, we, it happens subconsciously, you know? And so that is the one thing that you can do. I always say, you know, iterators never fail because they will continue to find a way. They will believe something else. They will say, you know, tomorrow's a new day. And they get past all the sort of performative garbage of, Nothing works for me. Been there, done that. You know, all this recalcitrant Habenula type language where somebody has failed in the past and they're telling you that they failed in that language. And so you have to protect them from failure. And the way to protect them from failure, again, is to add iteration, to talk about, okay, if that doesn't work, how many other ways can we do this? And also, if that doesn't work to protect them, just come back. You know, like it, it was, it, we, we didn't see something coming. We, you know, didn't anticipate something coming. It's not your fault. Just go out and try it on. If it's does, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't fit, if it's not a now, if it's not a you, then come back and let's, let's iterate on it. Let's, let's, let's tinker with it until something works for you. It's not bad. You are not bad and you're not alone. Most often when people have uh, a smart goal or they, they set a goal for themselves, they're going to miss the mark. You know, it's more often that than not. And so you're learning from that missing and you're setting up the expectation that they're not going to get it the first time. 
It's just like, you know, we, we have really distorted uh, anticipations or expectations when we do behavior change in our health area. If you gave me a guitar, I don't know how to play guitar. I wouldn't ever expect that, you know, I would be able to play like a maestro in the, in the next week when I came back to you. But that's what we see people expect when they set these hard goals, when they think they can change their behavior in this one way, and there's not flex and slack in the system. So to summarize, the way that the brain changes permanently is through neuroplasticity. The way that you get neuroplasticity is you have to repeat something over and over and over again until it's a habit. And a habit is only defined by being mindless about it, being automatic about it. So that's your target, that's your goal. And in order to get that goal, you have to manage failure in, in new ways. You're probably already doing it intuitively, but now you can really lean into it. Now that you know what the brain's doing and the sort of tripwire in the brain, the kill switch in the brain for motivation, you now know that that exists and it will naturally kind of adjust your practice with your patients. So I hope that was helpful. Please get a hold of me if you have any questions. My email is kbobinet at freshtry, K-B-O-B-I-N-E-T at freshtry, T-R-I dot com. And I'm happy to support you. It means a lot to me that the that we do this the right way, that we as a sort of league of clinicians are really, really using science and nature and, and, and our own experience to make innovation happen. So let me know how it goes for you. Thank you.